Hello, and welcome to the parking episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires of the New York Times and other such places. Hello. And we are here with Henry Graeber of Slate. Welcome, Henry. Thanks for having me. Henry, you have written a book about parking. Um, Introduce yourself and what is your book? I'm Henry. I am the author of Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. And, uh, well, the book does just that. It's uh, The the book is, um, I hope, one of those books that takes something boring and banal that you've never really thought twice about and and, and it forces you to uh, examine it a little more closely and, and ultimately um, causes you to have an epiphany, uh, sell your car and, uh, and, and, and ride a bike. We are going to talk all about parking on this show with you and why, if you are listening to this show in your car and in the back of your head, you're worrying about whether you'll be able to find a convenient free parking spot. That might not be the most perfect and ideal solution in terms of the planet and the city. Um, We are also, of course, going to talk about Coinbase and Binance and the SEC and what is happening to the crypto universe because that happened this week. It's all coming up on Slate Money. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Crypto Meltdown. Felix, what's the latest? It's a good song. It's it's a melt it's a meltdown. It's that wonderful feeling of crypto melting all over your hands in the summer heat. We love it. We love to see it. Um so yeah, the no. latest is that the Securities and Exchange Commission basically took aim at the two biggest exchanges that are left standing in the wake of the implosion of FTX. And the SEC is saying something which it has been saying quite consistently for some months now, but it's now saying it in the form of an official complaint, that both of them are operating illegal securities exchanges and they're not allowed to do that. And, you know, so now they're being sued by the SEC and no one likes to be sued by the SEC. Um, Basically what they're saying is that crypto exchanges are illegal. Um, is the long and short of it. And realistically speaking, if crypto exchanges are illegal, and if they're illegal in the United States, then it's really hard to make crypto exchanges that are not available to Americans, and no one really wants to try and do that because Americans have a lot of money, Um, then it's hard to use crypto at all. Like The whole crypto ecosystem starts looking like it's not really worth very much. And so... What the SEC is doing here, at least in my view, is really trying to kill crypto. The SEC and its complaint against Coinbase named a lot of different tokens and said they were unregistered securities, but they didn't name Bitcoin or Ethereum. I think the name of the token is Ethereum. Um, Those are presumably okay to trade still, an exchange? It looks as though Bitcoin and there's 
been this sort of semi-public agreement between the CFTC and the SEC that the CFTC, the Commodities and Futures Trading Commission, will worry about Bitcoin and Ethereum, while the SEC is going to worry about Mm -hmm. all of the other coins. So, yeah, the SEC is not claiming that Bitcoin and Ethereum are securities. So then, I mean, in a way, is this what the SEC doing is sort of forcing this world back to where it was like before the the bubble, you know, like people will still trade Bitcoin and Ethereum and it'll be, you know, it'll be like DeFi, you know, there won't be these corporate exchanges like Coinbase, but the market will sort of go on, you know, in, in a, just in a new, different, smaller way. It's not like crypto is going to go away or something. So yes, you're absolutely right that crypto isn't going away. There are DeFi exchanges which aren't really even owned by anyone, so no one knows how you could sue them even if they would what they were doing was illegal. Um, and as you say, people will continue to own and trade Bitcoin and Ethereum, although they will have to do so in ways that the CFTC is comfortable with, and it's not entirely com- you know obvious what the CFTC is going to be comfortable with. If you want to do this legally, then maybe you can create an exchange that only trades Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, although even then, you need to get on the good side of the CFTC, and it's not clear what the CFTC is going to require. But it's going to be a lot harder. It's going to be a lot clunkier. The great dream of this parallel payment system that is just going to seamlessly enter our lives in all manner of different ways, and we're going to be metaversing it up and going in and out of crypto all the time, doesn't seem to be likely anymore. Well, we should also mention the exchanges have had a long time to kind of think about this and anticipate that the SEC was going to do exactly what they did. Coinbase and Binance had different approaches to it. And there's a great quote from Binance's CCO from December 18, where he's talking to another compliance officer. And he just says, point blank, we are operating as a fucking and licensed securities exchange in the USA, bro. And, and you know, it, I think Coinbase is sort of taking the approach that uh, they're, they're being very upfront about what they're doing. You know, they're, they're making the requisite disclosures. And then Binance's strategy is to just build big chunk of the company offshore and try to make try to just stay out of the US markets as much as they can. And I, I don't I don't think it's right at all to say that Coinbase is making the requisite disclosures. Like Coinbase there are no requisite disclosures. So this isn't the kind of thing where you can make a disclosure and that's not all that's required. What is required is that you are a licensed securities dealer if you're going to be dealing in securities and they are not a licensed securities dealer. Coinbase is dealing in way more of these unlicensed securities than Binance is in the United States, like orders of magnitude more. And Coinbase is really the one that was thumbing its nose at the SEC and saying, we are an unlicensed securities exchange in the United States. Come at us. We are so big, you're not going to. And that wound up being false. Like They are big and the SEC came at them. I, I really believe that Binance was more careful to try and stay, as you say, try and stay out of the United States as much as possible. Yes, they were doing things in the United States. Yes, for the really big American clients, they were saying, can you please create 
you know, offshore entities that are allowed to trade on Binance.com. And, and yeah, they tried to get around the fact that what they were doing was illegal in the United States. And they knew that what they were doing in illegal, was illegal in the United States. But so did Coinbase. Coinbase knew this all along as well. What, what's, what's been very clear for a long time is that there has been no real way for a crypto exchange to operate legally in America, right? I mean, maybe Robinhood, if it only deals in Bitcoin and Ethereum and Dogecoin, you know, might be able, and it is a licensed securities dealer, maybe someone like Robinhood might be able to get through. But in general, if you're a crypto exchange, the SEC is not going to license you as a securities dealer. And it's going to say that so long as you're not a securities dealer, you're not allowed to do this. So this is why I'm saying that what they're trying to do is just make the whole thing illegal. Why? What took the SEC so long? I mean, they they let Coinbase, and you can explain that this is a different part of the SEC, but they let Coinbase become a public company. They have all these customers in the U.S., They've been operating this way for years now. Like, it's so disruptive to do regulation this way, to try and sue it, to shut down an illegal business. Why not get it when it starts? Like, it, it just, I don't understand kind of the, the overall strategy. And besides, you've had Coinbase saying publicly, at least, make rules for us. So, like, this this is the response? I don't. I don't quite understand. When I was talking about disclosures, I'm, I'm referring to, you know, Coinbase is a public company. And so they did have to disclose a lot of things to the SEC in the process of getting listed. So it seems like that would have been a better time to decide that it's an illegal exchange. Right. It's not as if Coinbase was was uh, obscuring what, what their business model was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's, there's no doubt. Defend it, Coinbase Felix. was always very open about what it was doing. <laughs> And the SEC was, you know, especially after Gary Gensler came in, was has always been very clear about we think that what they're doing is illegal. And then everyone's just been waiting for this shoe to drop. Like there is an, you're, you're right. One of the arguments that Coinbase has made over and over again to the point of being quite tiresome, frankly, is this one of like, why did you allow us to go public if you thought that what we were doing was illegal? Um, I mean, it's a good point. How is it not a good point? Well, there's there's two different things going on. Number one is that there's big, bold letters on the front of the S1, of the IPO prospectus, saying that the SEC has not approved these securities and um, any attempt to say otherwise is a criminal offense. So that's the very first page of the prospectus. And then, you know, if you just page a few pages into the risk factors part of it, they say very clearly we are in a regulatory gray zone. Regulators could come at us at any time, and there is a chance the regulators will decide that what we're doing is illegal and just shut us down. That is 100% disclosed in the prospectus for the stock, right? And anyone who buys the stock buys the stock in the knowledge of that risk factor and knowing that that is a risk. There is a long history of companies doing things that are illegal and saying, you know what, eventually we're just going to work out a way for this to become legal. Uber being a really prime example, right? What they did was basically illegal everywhere. And then the way they dealt with it was by eventually changing the law to allow what they wanted to happen to be legal. Another really good example is when Citigroup bought 
Salomon Smith Barney. They weren't allowed to do that, but they were like, don't worry about it, we're going to change the law. And then they changed the law, and that allowed their acquisition to happen. So the SEC, in general, companies do a bunch of things, and they can, as Elizabeth says, like they're making the disclosures. They're saying, like, what we're doing is in a regulatory gray zone at best. And what we want, and they've been very, very open about this all along, what we want is precisely what you're saying, Emily, which is a bunch of rules that will allow us to do what we are doing within the law. And what we are hoping for, and the, 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 the investment thesis for Coinbase was always that eventually Congress would get around to making some kind of a law that would make Coinbase legal. And then FTX imploded, and after FTX imploded, there was clearly no appetite within Congress to make that kind of a law. And I think that is really the answer to your question, is that the SEC was kind of waiting to see whether Congress would make this legal, because Mm. it would be kind of mean to attack Coinbase for doing something illegal if the Congress was about to make it legal. Um, Whereas after Mm -hmm. FTX, it became obvious that there was no way that Congress was going to make laws saying that, oh, yeah, crypto exchanges, they're great. And at that point, that's an effectively a green light to the SEC saying, okay, now you can file this suit. Right. And I think there's a broader, the way uh, American business is regulated is tends to be just like what you were saying, Felix, like more like Wild West, like go for it, try try things out. And the way we'll figure it out later is with lawsuits. I think that's how a lot of things work in the U.S. And like for companies, it usually works to their advantage. But I guess in this case, maybe not. I think for the SEC, that's that's especially a preferred mode of operation because they're just understaffed. And, and so everything is regulation by enforcement after the fact. Well, it's also the fact that the SEC doesn't make rules. Congress makes rules. So right. the SEC doesn't have the SEC can't just come out unilaterally and say here are the rules for how to become a licensed securities exchange if you're, an, if you're a um, crypto company, right? Congress needs to do that, and Congress is has is basically incapable of doing that, especially now after FTX. I don't think it's really fair to blame the SEC for that. That's so interesting. You could, if the crypto industry goes under, it's like partly Congress's fault for not supporting it in a way. Yeah. Or, or you know, is Congress, you know, the, the flip side view of it is that Congress has realized that crypto has no social utility and, in fact, can be quite harmful. And they're quite happy for it to be illegal and they're quite happy for the SEC to crack down on it. Mm. This is all kind of Sam Bankman-Fried's fault, I think, actually. <laughs> right? I mean, if he hadn't done crimings, alleged crimings <laughs> and frauds, then it, it, the industry wouldn't look so bad, I think. I think that's right. And like Felix said, if FTX, FTX happened, making it less palatable to do any kind of regulation. So he kind of like screwed it. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet. And it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? 
That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts, with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. So, Henry, congratulations on the book. You've been getting reviews all over the place. People love to talk about parking because it is something that especially Americans think about a lot. What's the what's the general reaction been? I think a lot of people have never really thought that hard about this subject. And so I think once you begin to see parking for what it is, is this giant nationwide subsidy for car ownership, it, it, it does have you know, the potential to produce a kind of epiphany in explaining the way the environment looks. And that's what I hope would happen with the book. And I'm pleased to see that that's happening for some people. And of course, other people say, you know, uh, screw you, you don't understand anything, uh, whatever, go back to Brooklyn. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the general thesis of the book is that we spend not only enormous amounts of money, but even enormous amounts of space. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there is more space devoted to parking spots in America than there is devoted to housing human beings. Is that right? Is that normal? Is is that, do you see that in the rest of the planet? Or is that a uniquely American thing? I think America is an outlier when it comes to parking. We have created an absolutely enormous amount of parking, um, both in terms of the uh, street space that's dedicated to it, um, and also in terms of the amount of parking that's folded into homes and offices and stores and and all that stuff. And I think, in fact, parking, you know, one of the funny things about parking that I learned writing a parking book is that as much as you think that um, nobody pays any attention to parking in uh, daily life or thinks about it, um, actually, most uh, professionals also don't pay any attention to parking, including architects, engineers, uh, transportation planners. I mean, it's just no one even knows, nobody even knows how many parking spaces there are in New York City, for example, which you would think would be pretty low-hanging fruit since the land is worth more than anywhere else on, on Earth, uh, but no one's, no one's bothered to count them. So that's a long way of saying that I can't say for sure um, that America is an absolute outlier in these terms, but, um, but certainly many other countries have more progressive policies when it comes to allocating space for parking and for other things. I was looking into the parking situation for some specific buildings near where I live in downtown Manhattan. And I happened to know the architect of the big federal courthouse downtown. And I was interested how much parking that has, like just in in the basement of the building. So I asked him and he had no idea because, as you say, this is a complete afterthought for architects. They don't care about this kind of thing. They really don't. I, I talked to a, a 
garage owner who was telling me that he just he just hates working with architects because they just don't they don't think they don't think about parking at all. And in fact, they don't teach parking in architecture school. And if you go to an architecture school, you'll see all the designers coming to their uh, their crits with these beautiful little models of these uh, pretty little apartment buildings and pretty little houses, and they never include any parking. And it's just like, hello. You realize when you go into the real world, like that's going to be the first thing on this site. Like throw throw it all out, throw out everything you've done here. Unless you're working in uh, Lower Manhattan or Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, parking it is going to be the first thing that you figure out how to put on this site before you do any designing at all. You had a stat in the book, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but just to give people a sense of scale, I think you said there are three parking spots. Was it for every person or every car? Three per car is considered the the minimum, the baseline of how many parking spots there are in the country, three per car. And of course, some of those cars are in motion, so um, there's always a little bit extra. You were saying earlier, Henry, that, and Felix, we have more parking spaces than than housing for people, yet why can't I ever find a spot? But Henry's book answers the question, and it, it all to do with the pricing of the parking, because it's for some reason free. Is that kind of the market mechanism here that makes no sense? Free parking has a huge um, distorting effect on how people use and own cars. And this has been shown in study after study after study. Um, like there was a great study of uh, people who received housing through an affordable housing lottery in San Francisco. And so it was a pretty basically a, a random selection of people who applied for the affordable housing lottery. And what you saw was that the people who wound up in apartment buildings with free parking included mm-hmm. were way more likely to own cars than the people who wound up in apartment buildings without parking included. And uh, what that shows is that having parking will uh, is, is a huge uh, subsidy and, and incentive towards car ownership. And that, that's true both in terms of the parking that's included in the buildings and it's uh, also true of the, the parking on, on the streets. So um, if you're thinking about how to control the amount of traffic and how to control um, demand for parking, building more parking usually isn't the solution because uh, you you create you you create more incentives for car ownership, and then also obviously the more parking you build, the the more you create an environment where people really have to drive because it pushes things further and further apart, and, and also creates at a at a block by block level um, a place where you don't really want to walk around. And then obviously you c- you can control so much of this with with parking meters, but for whatever reason, cities haven't really gotten into into using meters in that way to control the flow of traffic. Yeah, they're not popular. And I think that's in part because they are perceived as a kind of sneaky money-making tool. Um, And residents aren't entirely wrong when they see the way that cities approach parking as not being about uh, proper street management, but rather being about like, extracting as much money from motorists as possible. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it would be nice to try and reset that um, that relationship because I think that uh, actually parking meters are the only tool we have to control this precious interface between the streets and the buildings, which is the curb. And if you don't have meters, you don't really have that many options for 
how to control how long people park, whether they park, um, et cetera. And, and, and so it's a, it's a really immensely valuable tool and one that's unfortunately, um, I think, fallen into you know, a, a period of mistrust and, and misuse. So I have two questions about that, Henry. Like you have an amazingly good chapter explaining the fiasco that was the Chicago <gasps> yes. parking meter privatization. And I can highly recommend everyone read that to explain, first of all, like just how much money potentially is in parking meters and also how governments, especially in the Chicago case, seem to be incredibly bad at capturing that money for themselves. Um, my question is like, is there a city in america i guess san francisco you said is is started to do metered parking pretty well and more to the point when you say that it's true that people are moving towards using these things more as a revenue generation tool than the parking than the traffic management tool um are those two not aligned like isn't there a glorious sort of free market um solution here that the thing that maximizes parking meter revenue is also going to maximize the flow of traffic? Uh, now, that's, that's a great question, right? Because you would think that uh, you raise the meter prices enough and you clear out a spot. You, you, you know, if you raise the prices enough that you have a free spot on every block, then everybody who wants to drive somewhere has a parking spot immediately when they arrive. Yeah. And they understand that the busiest high access blocks with the, with the shops and the offices and the restaurants are more expensive. And then the block sort of by the freeway that's a little further away is a little cheaper. And there's a space on every block uh, and the prices are coordinated and all that. And I agree with you, that is designing your parking meter um, system to optimize for, for good street management. But here's the thing about revenue. Most revenue in cities comes not from parking meters, but from parking violations. And so in a funny sense, if you're trying to maximize the amount of money you bring in from parking, it is not in your interest to create a place for everyone to park the moment they need to park. Um, actually, the way to make the most money possible from um, street parking is to encourage lots and lots of illegal parking and then to ticket those people. And just to underline the extent to which this is the case, um, I brought you guys some numbers from uh, New York City, which I will read to you. The largest category of fines in New York City is parking violations. They make up 60% of the city's fine revenue. And in fiscal year 2015, that was $560 million. Uh, and, and, and would anyone like to guess how much money comes from meters and public garages put together? A billion oh, dollars. No, that's, no. this is a subset of the $560 million. Okay. No, it's oh, not. It's, oh, a, it's a different number, but it's oh, smaller. Oh, it's a different number, but it's smaller. But smaller. $250 million. That's, that's pretty close. It's $200 million. <laughs> So So let me, let, me, let me rephrase that really, really crisply. You have um, New York City gets $560 million from parking violations and just $200 million from meters and garages put together. So they're making almost three times as much money from illegal parking as they are from legal parking. And to me, that demonstrates that the city has a kind of incentive in a, in a really dark way not to, not to reform the system because they, they're just cranking out the cash from all this double parking. And, 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 and you know, obviously that has a lot of externalities, including like uh, life-sucking traffic congestion, which probably has a huge economic, um, uh, brings a huge economic penalty as well. But, um, but as far as the city coffers are concerned, Legal parking is good business. And and this in a city where illegal parking, 
um, is it goes unfined and unpunished an astonishing degree of the time, as again you oh. write in the book. Right, right. So yeah, so you can. So in New York City, yeah, they could if they were if they, for example, decided to to make a move like, for example, Paris or or many uh, East Asian cities and use. Uh, LPR, license plate recognition, um, which is when you have a car that looks sort of like the Google Street View van, drives down the block, has a camera on the top, scans all the license plates, figures out, you know, cross-checks that against the meter payments, figures out who's in violation, who's not, issues a ticket in the mail. Um, you could probably double that or triple that revenue. But the city doesn't want to do that, I think, in part because there's a sense that the political backlash would be so extreme. Like, like you couldn't, if you were to actually punish everybody for every illegal parking violation, I think as a, as a PBA head, uh, Pat Lynch put it once, like you could, you could house, house and feed all the homeless in New York city or something like that. You'd end up ticketing a lot of cops too. As Elizabeth says, like the, the, the main people who would be paying those extra time fines would be cops and they hate paying fines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and in fact, it, it's not just cops, right? It's like all public sector workers. And we were talking earlier about how parking incentivizes driving. And if you give away free parking, more people will drive. And um, I just want to share with you this great study, which is relevant to this, which is that um, a study of New York City concluded that if government workers drove at the same rate as private sector employees, nearly 20,000 fewer cars would enter Manhattan every day. And that was a study from 2006. So... <laughs> We're talking about placard abuse is not only uh, about policemen um, parking in front of hydrants and, and parking on your sidewalk, but it is also about adding, you know, give or take 25,000 cars to uh, to the traffic congestion in, in, in Manhattan every day. But let's let's move this away from New York City for a minute and just talk about like the broad mass of America, because Manhattan is obviously a, a, an outlier. You make the case, I think quite compellingly, that the things that characterize the American streetscape um, and that make it feel so uniquely American, the strip malls and the drive-throughs and all of that kind of thing, are really just a natural function and grow out of legislated parking minimums. It's not like an American thing. It's just like someone came up with parking minimums and that's the architecture that you get when you have parking minimums. Yeah, it's so true. When you think about the um, vernacular architecture that most Americans um, say they like most and say is what they want in their neighborhoods, um, you're talking about something that we have actually made illegal to build. And one of the reasons that's illegal is, of course, because of zoning. Uh, but a more fundamental reason, even in places that don't have zoning or have relatively permissive zoning, is because of parking minimums and the need to provide parking, which um, consumes an enormous amount of space and costs an enormous amount of money. Um, the average cost of a parking space in a structured uh, parking garage in the U.S. in 2023 is $28,000. And that obviously includes uh, some high-cost places where it costs much more and also some low-cost places where it costs a lot less. But, I mean, that's your average. So if you're thinking every space is $27,000 to build, you begin to understand why it doesn't really pencil out to, to build a row of, of brownstones or something like that um, and, uh, and, and include all that, all that parking as well. Um, and as a result, we've, we've sort of eliminated the, the potential to, to build places like you know, Fort Greene in Brooklyn or Santa Monica or 
um, you know, Bucktown and Chicago, like all these neighborhoods that were built before parking requirements are actually illegal and impossible to build now. You know, you also talk a lot in the book about uh, how arbitrary some of the minimum requirements are and what they're based on. Like there was something like, you know, one parking space per four theater seats, things like that. Uh, where have you seen people make more rational and, and you know, <laughs> common sense, I guess, uh, decisions around how to evaluate how much parking is needed and also how, how valuable it is? The requirements were originally designed to help cities adapt to meet suburban standards for parking. And so they were very much designed to um, provide enough parking uh, to suit um, locations where people would have no choice but to come by car. And when those requirements were imposed on the city, obviously a lot of that parking ended up going unused because some people still came by bus or by train or they walked or they rode a bike or, or whatever, or they just parked on the street a couple blocks away and did their errands. And, um, and and so that has been kind of a disaster for cities of the last 70 years to impose these suburban land use types on what had once been pretty dense and tightly knit urban neighborhoods. Now, there is a lot of reform happening right now, and perhaps the most fundamental one is just to say, it's no longer the government's job to tell you how many parking spaces you need. If you think that the people renting your apartments are going to want two spaces per unit, then you build two spaces per unit. And if you think they would rather um, save that money and uh, figure out where to park their car uh, after they rent the the, the apartment, then uh, you could build that way and let your tenants figure it out later. And um, I think actually that is a subject – that's an idea that has a tremendous amount of potential right now because we are seeing so many central business districts um, that are no longer as full as they were before uh, before the pandemic. And one of the things that that's created is an enormous surplus of structured parking. And so, um, you know, one of the things that happened in Los Angeles when they reformed their parking rules downtown is developers renovated historic buildings into apartments. People moved in. There wasn't enough parking in the buildings, but people parked their cars in the office garages that were a couple blocks away. And that's a kind of beautiful symbiotic thing that we could really be doing now in every downtown with all this unused office garage space. Can we just briefly talk about what happened in Chicago, actually? I mean, Felix touched on it before, but I, it's just... I, I was just amazed by this story. And I think your book kind of sent it viral because someone, before I even got to the chapter in the book, someone said to me, did you know Chicago sold all their parking meters? And I was like, I don't understand what that even means. And then I read the <laughs> chapter and now I kind of understand what it means, but maybe you could explain to well, listeners. They, they, they certainly didn't understand what it meant <laughs> when, they, when they did it. Um, in 2008, Chicago was in the midst of a frenzy of privatization of public assets. Richard Daley was trying to privatize all sorts of stuff that the city owned that he thought the private sector could manage better. And in addition, that the city could get um, a paycheck uh, from selling off or, or renting out those assets. And in 2008, he tried to do that with the city's 36,000 parking meters. He got a bid from uh, a group of investors led by Morgan Stanley. They offered Chicago $1.15 billion in exchange for 75 years of control of the city's uh, parking meters. And Chicago took that deal. Deal took effect at the beginning of 2009. And I think everyone agrees it has pretty much been a disaster for Chicago. So it's been a disaster partly because they just got way less money than it was worth. And they, the Morgan Stanley group wound up getting its billion dollars back almost 
immediately and they hiked up um meter rates much more than maybe the city would have done on its own and no one realized at the time how much they were going to hike them but more to the point and this is um i think the most compelling part of your chapter they made it impossible for the city to use that metered parking space for any other higher better use because anytime you want to do that you have to pay Morgan Stanley a huge amount of money for some imaginary amount of money that they think they might be able to make from that space otherwise. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is the part that they really didn't see coming. I mean, you could argue that they didn't see the uh, – they certainly didn't understand how much the meters were worth because like many American cities, they made more money from parking meter violations than they made from the meters themselves. And so – when it came to evaluating how much people would pay for the meters, they'd never really thought seriously about that question because for them, parking revenue was mostly from parking tickets and not from parking meters. But of course, Morgan Stanley had no trouble crunching the numbers and saying, you know what? Garages are this amount of money, so streets could probably be priced at a, at a higher rate. And uh, the city knew this was going to happen. I mean, it was no mystery how Morgan Stanley would make money from their parking meters. They were clearly going to raise the rates. And the city later argued that, well, we didn't have the political um, – <laughs> we couldn't have done it. You know, Only a private company could have withstood the uh, the political backlash here. Um, but you know, there were ways around that. They could have – you know, they could have sold bonds that were tied to uh, uh, meter revenue, for example. And that would have been a way of locking in higher meter revenue in the future, but still making sure that that money came into city coffers. And uh, and that's obviously not the case now. But I think, Felix, you're right that the, the, the hidden consequence here was that when it came time to try and adapt Chicago's streets and build, for example, bus lanes, bike lanes, open streets, farmers markets, ticker tape parades, and now electric vehicle charging – they have very little option with a lot of these uh, big commercial corridors because those are earmarked for meters and the meter money is earmarked for uh, CPM LLC, Chicago Parking Meters LLC, which is the Morgan Stanley created uh, entity that, that collects that money. And every time the city wants to do something with one of those spaces, it has to find a new space to meter that it can consider to have equivalent value. And that's that's a pretty difficult task because they kind of already did them all, you know? Um, so yeah, they've basically given up control. And the most inscrutable part of this is that they gave up control for 75 years. And so <laughs> like we're 15 years into this deal, the investors have already made their money back and then some, and there are still 60 years to go. It's really a compelling case study for why privatization is bad. Like it shows pretty clearly, like even if you get a bunch of money up front to give away the crown jewels <laughs> of your city or your state or whatever, it's not worth losing the control. Like the control is the power. It's not just about money. Also, the most appalling piece of that story to me was the fact that uh, Daly's administration was arguing that if this deal didn't go through, they were going to have a budget shortfall that year. <laughs> Which is just a crazy reason to do it. <laughs> and when the, the five people who voted against it, the aldermen um, who tried to investigate the deal, you know, were given two days to look at the leasing agreement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, they were absolutely. Really, yeah. For a 75 year deal. <laughs> right. They were definitely, there was some browbeating involved. Oh, yeah. And 
obviously, you know, the Chicago uh, Board of Aldermen is is no one's idea of America's finest political body. But even then, they said this was many people said this was their worst decision in their career, their decades long career as aldermen was selling off the parking meters. I would I would love love to take this opportunity because I think the the opportunity cost of selling off the parking meters is something that only really became clear in the last three years. I think a lot has changed in the last three years, and yours is the first major parking book to come out post pandemic. And it's seen, and this is, I guess, maybe the hopeful, but also the most complex part of the book, which is how are cities changing and how is zoning changing and how is parking changing and how did the pandemic play into that and how did the pandemic change the way we think about parking that is a very big question um i want to point to two things that i think were underway before the pandemic that have created a sense of momentum around um parking as a subject of activism and interest and you now have, in addition to um, the followers of Professor Don Shoup, the Shoupistas, you have a group called the Parking Reform Network, which is dedicated to, to making these kinds of changes in cities, which is to say pricing parking properly and um, ending parking requirements that, that mandate all this parking at every site. And I think the two reasons that this has been happening over the last, let's say, five, six, ten years, number one is the housing crisis. I think there's a growing awareness that Parking is expensive, it takes up room, it imposes a, a challenging condition for many small infill developers, and housing is just more important than parking right now. And that the requirement to provide parking has served as a serious imposition and a serious cost on our ability to provide housing. And um, that sense of activism around housing has taken a lot of forms. Obviously, the Yes in My Backyard movement is, is a big part of it. Uh, but parking there seems like perhaps the lowest hanging fruit and also is a point where there you actually witness people taking advantage of this arbitrage in real time. People living in domestic garages, right? Like in accessory dwelling units, which has been underway for decades, but the number of people who have um, decided to turn garages into auxiliary housing units might be in the millions. We, we don't really know. Uh, and then on a more tragic note, obviously people living in, in parking spaces in their cars. And, you know, because we have failed to provide enough housing in this country, because we have limits on how much housing we can build in any given spot, but we have uh, succeeded in providing an ample amount of parking because we have minimum requirements for how much parking is required everywhere. So the activism around housing is part of the reform movement around parking. And then the second thing is climate and the realization that our transportation policy is uh, well, the largest contributor uh, to greenhouse gas emissions in the United States, and also comes with another, a number of other externalities, including, you know, local particulate pollution, uh, automobile crashes, a sort of degraded quality of the urban environment, and all that stuff. And I think parking is is obviously front and center when you think about trying to reform that. One thing that struck me in your book, um, early on, you tell a story of this uh, developer who's trying to build affordable housing in California and she had all these difficulties because of the parking lot. She wanted to build the housing on a parking lot, I think. And 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 you were saying a lot of the people that were upset the parking was going away. It was just sort of like um like dog whistle arguments that were kind of racist basically because it was a fancy beachside town and it would have been affordable housing and there there were a few people saying like 
if you're, you know, poor people don't deserve to live by the beach or, um, or just using parking requirements as sort of a way to keep certain kinds of people out of neighborhoods. And I was wondering, like, if, if the parking requirements go away, those same arguments will surface in other ways. Like it's just a way, it's just a, a strategy for the same old American story, you know, of redlining or whatever it is. Yeah, I, I think it's obviously you, you're never going to, I don't think that I have the power to change people's minds about being prejudiced about new neighbors, right? But I think what we can do is we can see clearly the choices that are being made when we insist on parking as a condition for new housing. Because I think those those people in Solana Beach are almost like caricatures of the American neighborhood meeting in terms of the way that people will bring up parking as a way to, to stop people from moving in. But I think it is true more broadly that Americans often think of the potential new neighbors moving into their neighborhood as coming in parking-sized packages, and they perceive them as an automatic threat um, to their uh, to their free on-street parking that they've been entitled to for years. And you know, one argument you could make is, well, that means we should require parking with new developments so that um, people will just <laughs> allow new things to get built. But as I hope my book demonstrates, that policy comes with a tremendous cost as well. And I think in terms of how to get neighbors to to come around to the idea that um, they're their new neighbors don't necessarily have to encroach on their public parking supply. I mean, that that's the challenge, right? That's that's the big challenge that these activists face. I, I don't think there's an easy answer to that, but I think we can at least be really clear about um, the cost that this demand for parking imposes on our ability to, um, you know, build housing in the places where people need it most. Yeah, certainly people would rather have affordable housing than like homeless people, you know, like living in parking lots where the, right. in, instead. That's a great example of refra reframing the the, the, the trade-off, right? Like, I, and this is, you see this argument around the environment too. People say, well, we don't want more people in our neighborhood because we like our neighborhood being low density and green and it's good for the environment. It's like, well, think a little bit larger, like expand your horizon a little bit and realize that when people don't live in your neighborhood and when they don't have... Uh, close access to jobs and amenities, and they don't live in a place where they can ride their bike to a restaurant or grocery store, they're going to end up living in the urban wildland interface zone where their house is going to be vulnerable to forest fires, and they're going to have to drive 60 miles to get to work every day. And that is the choice you're making mm -hmm. <laughs> when you tell people mm -hmm. that they can't live in your neighborhood. And I think that's true of the, the parking housing situation as well. Like, yeah, okay, uh, it might be a little more difficult to park, but the trade-off you face is uh, there's going to be somebody living in a tent on your sidewalk. Henry, you do have a bit at the end of the book that I found fascinating where you were like, where you did take the other side of this argument and you said there is a case to be made that having parking in cities is the only way that people who aren't incredibly rich and who can afford to live in the middle of those cities are ever realistically going to be able to get into those cities and it is a way of making cities a bit more egalitarian. I I think I'm playing devil's advocate there a little bit. I mean, I do see the argument that that that, that people make around that, but I think the larger picture is that the focus on parking is mostly an impediment to building housing. And a free parking spot is a pretty lousy consolation prize for not being able to afford to live in the city. The other thing I would say about that is that people tend to assume that low-income people 
need free parking um, because they don't make a lot of money. And so the most important thing for them is to park for free. But the trade-off with free parking in busy destinations is that it's often very hard to find. And I think for a lot of low-income workers, the cost imposed by uh, parking being unreliable is actually greater than the amount of money that, that you would have to pay for a parking spot, right? Like, it's it, there's an implication in some of that uh, argument that, you know, people who don't make a lot of money, their time isn't worth very much. And I think it's often the opposite, actually. They are, the, they are some of the people who, who need most to be able to find parking where they need it, when they need it, you know, delivery drivers, for example, right? Racking up tens of thousands of dollars in, in fines, right? Like for those people, free parking is a relatively, um, it's a cost. It's actually a pretty significant cost um, compared to paying a meter and being able to find a spot uh, when they arrive to do their job. So let's have, let's have a numbers round. Um, and I'm going to steal a number from Henry's book because this is an awesome one. Um, my number is 21%. And that is this fantastic statistic from Henry's book where he says drivers take 21% longer to leave a spot if someone else is waiting for that spot. <laughs> Which is just <laughs> the most glorious sort of like window into the psychology part of parking. And I kind of want to do a slate plus on just like how people become the worst form of themselves the minute that parking gets involved yeah parking pettiness but you know there's a new thing now i don't know if it's super new but i i've noticed and uh, my husband pointed it out recently that people get back to their cars in these times and they just stare at their phones for a good five, 10 minutes before they leave the spot. Also, <laughs> it, it, you see it, you sit in your car and you look at the next car and the person over there is on their phone. I mean, I'm on my phone too. I'm doing it, but a parked car is now a mobile office. It's, it's a workspace and you can just sit in your car yes. And do work on yes. like Slack on your phone, and you're actually working, and you're being productive. And everyone's saying like, "When are you going to get out of your parking space?" And you're like, "Excuse me, but I, I'm on a Zoom call here." The number of TikToks, like there is a there is you're a like, whole genre of TikTok. Now. Half of TikTok <laughs> is people recording TikTok videos in their car. You know, a car is now a mobile movie studio. Um, Emily, what's your number? Oh, my number is not parking related. My number is two hundred and eighty-six. That is the number of corporate bankruptcy filings as of May. Um, it is the highest total going back to 2010. And it's um, it's what happens when the Federal Reserve raises rates really fast, as it has done, and has thrown all these uh, companies into bankruptcy like Bed Bath & Beyond and the Christmas Tree Store, RIP. Love the Christmas Tree Store. Very sad about that one. Vice is another one. Sealy. A lot of companies out of business this year. Elizabeth? Uh, my number is 222, and that was the air quality index at 105 this morning in New York City. It's a function of fires in Canada. And there was an interview with a Columbia professor this morning. Uh, we're taping on a Wednesday, by the way, uh, where he said, you know, this is just going to be a regular feature of climate going no. forward. <laughs> but if you, you went out yesterday on Twitter? York, the sky was kind of... Uh, grayish orange and you could smell smoke like it was New Yorkers are now learning what it's like to be Californian you see all the Californians saying like exactly. welcome to our lives 
Yeah. Um, Henry, did you ring a number? Yes, I have a number. My number is 260, as in $2.60. That is how much you would have to meter parking spaces on the Upper West Side per hour, 260 an hour, to afford uh, MTA uh, monthly Metro cards for every single person who lives in the neighborhood. That's wild. Oh, my God. And right now, to be clear, like these Upper West Side parking spaces, which serve apartments which what start at like one point some million dollars and rapidly go up from there they're all free they're all free and uh there are 18 people on the upper west side for every single parking space so they are a uh, they're a rare quantity indeed and they're all free and if you charge just 250 an hour uh you could raise enough money to buy a uh, full year transit passes for all 110,000 people who live in the neighborhood so apropos the Chicago argument of, like, we just don't have the political power to raise parking meter prices, um, do you understand in this, you know, liberal enclave of Manhattan why it's so hard to put parking meters on those streets? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get it. I don't get it. There's 18 people for every one parking space. So clearly the number of people who actually use these spaces is a very tiny minority. But, of course – it's a it's a minority that would be directly affected by a new policy. And so it's a very squeaky wheel. And I think for other people, the benefits of that policy are pretty diffuse, right? Like they don't really see what the connection is. And I think, I mean, this is Donald Shoup's idea, but if you make it super, super clear, like I just did, and you say, look, we're going to charge for this space. But the flip side is you never have to pay to take the subway again. And it's like, oh, well, that's not bad. Henry Graeber, thank you so much for coming on this show. It's been awesome having you. Thank you to Patrick Fort for producing this amazing international show where all five of us are in five different cities. It's crazy. Um, but thank you for listening. We'll be back on Saturday with another Slate Money. And keep your emails coming. Uh, email address, as ever, is slatemoney at slate.com. And, yeah, and if you are a Slate Plus listener we're going to talk to henry about his personal experience our personal experience finding parking it's the kia summer sticker sales event so give your friends something to look at like a b&b with an ocean view an endless field of wildflowers or a sunset that needs no filter make this a summer to share and save with a capable kia suv or powerful sedan See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.